0: Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew twenty-three, thirteen to fifteen. Again, that's Matthew twenty-three, thirteen to fifteen. And uh, let's go ahead and begin by reading our passage together this morning. In this passage, Jesus is responding to the challenge brought against him by this coalition of religious leaders in the temple on the Tuesday before his crucifixion. As you'll recall, he has emerged from that debate victorious. And here in Matthew twenty-three, after a brief warning to the crowds and to his disciples about the pitfalls, of religious hypocrisy he launches into the scathing rebuke of the scribes and the Pharisees whose hard-heartedness at this point should be so evident to those who are in attendance. And he begins that rebuke here in Matthew 23:13 to 15 where he denounces the scribes and Pharisees for the effect of their hypocrisy, saying this, "But woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!" For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. There's no doubt that Jesus generally despised the teachings of Israel's religious leaders. In Matthew 15, he called them blind guides, warning that those who followed them would be led into a pit. You go back to the Sermon on the Mount and he calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. Essentially, wolves dress up as prophets, as shepherds who pretend to lead the flock of Israel to safety while secretly ravaging them for their own personal gain. In another instance, he portrays them almost as brigands who prevent travelers from entering the path that leads to refuge while beckoning them down a broad and wide, well-traveled path that leads to destruction. In fact, at the very beginning of that sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he flat out says that anyone who listens to their teaching will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus even goes so far as to call these men children of the devil in John 8. He just clearly does not respect these men or their teaching. He holds them in incredibly high disdain. And that may seem strange to outsiders. That may seem strange, especially when you consider how similar they both were in their teaching. Now, that probably even sounds strange to hear, considering the level of animosity that existed between Jesus and Israel's religious leaders. I mean, they did crucify Jesus, after all. They said he had a devil in one context. They called him a glutton and a drunkard in another. And Jesus, for his part, said that they were more hard-hearted than the Ninevites, worse off even than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was really just no love lost between these two groups of men. But it's true. Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, relatively speaking, were actually very similar in their teaching. I mean, you get down to it, and they were alike on like 90% of the issues that they taught. For example, they both worshipped the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The scribes and the Pharisees, they weren't atheists or something like that. And Jesus didn't worship Zeus or Osiris or something like that. They both believed in the existence of one God who made both heaven and the earth. They both believed that this God made a promise to Abraham to bless his descendants and make the resulting nation the greatest nation on the face of the earth. They both believed that a son of David would fulfill this promise through a breathtaking demonstration of wrath and judgment. They both believed in the resurrection of the dead. And they both accepted all of what you and I would call the Old Testament today as canonical and inspired by God. These are things that, even within Israel, there was not universal agreement on. The Samaritans, for instance, wouldn't subscribe to these ideas. Neither were the Sadducees. I think we really underestimate this point. Jesus probably had more in common with the scribes and Pharisees than he had with any other religious sect in the entire ancient world. And yet, in spite of all of that, Jesus has just this incredible amount of disdain for them and for their teaching. Jesus said that these men shut people out of the kingdom of heaven. If you want to understand why Jesus has such a disdain for these men, you can find your answer right here. It's right here in places like Matthew 23, 13 to 15. He said that these men shut people out of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says they didn't just shut people out of the kingdom of heaven, but they actually made their disciples twice as much a child of hell as themselves. Basically, they made it so that it would be even harder for their disciples to find salvation than it would be for the scribes and the Pharisees themselves. They were further away from the kingdom of heaven than even the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus denounced in such staunch terms. If I could say it this way, they made the disciples' second state worse than the first. The scribes and the Pharisees' disciples were closer to heaven than before. uh, They were closer to heaven before the scribes and the Pharisees ever got a hold of them. This is why Jesus so often speaks against their leadership in such explosive terms. Their teaching was perhaps the most dangerous of all. It was worse even than that of the pagans that surrounded them, perhaps not in degree, most certainly not in degree, but in effect, in impact. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees may have only been about 10% off, perhaps, in their theology, but that 10%, it may not seem huge, but according to Jesus, it was still enough to shut a person out of the kingdom of heaven. The problem for the Pharisaical proselyte was that while the Pharisees' teaching was still far enough to keep a person out of the kingdom of heaven. It was still close enough to make it seem like they had entered in. That they had made it, that they had arrived. That's what makes their false religion so dangerous. You know, the woman at the well, she may be a Samaritan. She may be an adulteress. By every extent of the imagination, she is very much outside of the kingdom when she first meets Jesus. But at least she knows it. When Jesus starts talking to her about how Jerusalem is the place where she ought to worship. That may indicate a doctrinal difference between the two of them. But at the very least, all that means is that she's in a position to realize that whatever Jesus is offering, it's something she doesn't have. That puts her in a position to confess her unbelief, repent and believe. The Pharisee of Luke 7, the one called Simon, who invited Jesus to dine with him, Only they didn't watch this other sinful woman come in and wash Jesus' feet with her tears. He didn't have that. Again, there would have been no doubt to that woman that she needed what Jesus was offering. She already knew that she was outside of the kingdom by the life that she had lived. But Simon? Simon, what what did he have to repent of? He already had right doctrine. He had lived an essentially moral life. Why would he need Jesus? He was already there. He had made it. As far as he was concerned, he was in the kingdom of heaven. And so he just couldn't fathom what was transpiring there at his dinner table. What makes false religion so dangerous is that it takes men like Simon and it blinds them to their need for salvation by being close enough to the truth to make them think they're already saved and so hardening them to the gospel while still leaving them outside of heaven's gates. This is why Jesus condemned the Pharisees' teaching so harshly. This is why he even compared it to leaven. As close as it was to the truth, that only made it all the more dangerous because it came clothed as truth and salvation. So Jesus saw their teaching, which as he understood it was really motivated by nothing more than pride and selfish greed. He saw it as this insidious, subversive, deceptive kind of influence, a poison disguised as medicine which once administered would slowly spread like gangrene among those with a sensitive religious conscience and produce their death. Yes, Jesus hated their teaching. He hated it because as close as it was to the truth, it was this very closeness that made it so incredibly destructive. I don't want you to miss this point. Jesus shared much in common with the Pharisees. They were perhaps more like him than anyone else in the ancient world. And yet, Jesus saved his harshest words for them. He rebuked them the hardest, even though ostensibly they only differed in just a few key beliefs. By modern standards, this would lead people to call Jesus hateful. They'd call him divisive. He'd be branded arrogant, intolerant, a troublemaker, all because he would not compromise on a few key beliefs. After all, there's this perception that's pretty common in the church today that if you cut a fine line and labor to distinguish Scripture's teaching on the gospel in clear terms, then all you're doing is stirring up conflict for really no reason whatsoever. The way most think today, they'd say, come on, Jesus, can't we just focus on our similarities with the Pharisees rather than our differences? Instead of quibbling over minor differences in doctrine, can't we just focus on what we have in common and work together? And do you know what Jesus would say? He'd say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not when those so-called minor differences define the difference between heaven and hell. No, then there will be no compromise. Again, the Pharisees could be with Jesus 90% of the way. But if that final 10% defined the difference between heaven and hell then there would be no compromise. And Jesus would not mince words. He did not mince words about that final 10%. He fought those so-called minor differences with all of his strength because he understood that they meant all the difference in the end. People would go to heaven or hell based on those differences. And the fact that the Pharisees were so close while at the same time being so far away, this only made them all that more dangerous in the end. And so rather than speaking to them or about them in conciliatory tones, he publicly excoriated them as he warned people about the extreme danger they presented. I hope you keep this in mind as we continue this current series on false gospels today. For five weeks now, we've been talking about false gospels, and I would think at times that it probably sounds like I'm being a bit overcritical but I'm drawing some pretty fine lines that really don't seem that they should matter so much in the end, but understand I do it because it isn't enough to be 90% right. So long as that remaining 10% shuts a person out of the kingdom. In fact, in those situations, we need to be all the more diligent, all the more forceful in defining the difference between the true gospel and the false because it's precisely that similarity is that proximity to the truth. That makes false gospels so incredibly dangerous. Once again, this is now our fifth week exploring false gospels together. That's how we've responded to the implications of Matthew 23, 13 to 15. We've seen that false religion shuts a person out of the kingdom of heaven by masquerading as truth. And so realizing that we live in a highly religious area, an area in which false gospels are likely to proliferate, we're taking Time to be extra attentive to this issue by exploring and evaluating the false gospels that are common to our area. And the question that we're asking ourselves in this study is, in what gospel have I believed? In what gospel have I believed? Have I believed in a false gospel or have I perhaps allowed a false gospel to infiltrate my thinking so that it's negatively affecting my growth in Christ or so that it's negatively affecting even the way I proclaim Christ? By my count, there are nine false gospels that surround us. I've broken these false gospels into two categories. There are the goal-oriented false gospels, which set our hope on something other than Jesus, something other than fellowship with God. And then there are the means-oriented false gospels, which set our hope on the right object. They proclaim the joy of knowing God. They preach reconciliation, but they tell us the wrong way to get it. Up to this point, we've already discussed six, oriented, uh, six goal-oriented false gospels now, Today, I want to turn my attention to three means-oriented false gospels. If I were to articulate how these gospels work, I would describe it like this. Uh, By the way, this is an illustration I've heard in a couple of different contexts and a couple of different ways. In fact, I recently heard this particular version of this illustration told by the president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Jason Allen. So I'm totally ripping it off of him, but I think it illustrates the point well, so I'm going to go ahead and use it. Suppose that for one reason or another, uh, we were all to decide to take a trip together. We fly to Asia or to Africa or something like that. Maybe we're going on a mission trip or something like that. We'll say we're going on a mission trip together. And as we're flying to our destination, the plane crashes. Now, it's not one of those blow-up-in-mid-air type of crashes or something like that. It's a controlled sort of touchdown in the ocean, but it's a crash. The plane stops flying, and we have to ditch into the ocean to survive. And suppose that we manage to crash near a deserted island. And then most everyone on the plane survives and makes it to the island. And just suppose, and just run with me here on this, okay? Suppose that something happened to the plane that made its final location a mystery to search parties. That's actually not so far-fetched, right? Uh, That's kind of what happened to MH370. Uh, Just over a year and a half ago, the plane's transponder became inactive. One way or another, it was shut off, and the plane basically disappeared in the Indian Ocean. Say that happened to our plane. Only we're alive. But we're lost on this deserted island out in the middle of, uh, let's just go ahead and say we're in the Pacific, right? We're in the Pacific Ocean. Well, what would probably happen next in that scenario is we realize that we're going to be on this island for a while is that we're probably going to start to organize, right? There are going to be people of all different skill sets on that plane. You're going to have doctors and lawyers and businessmen and craftsmen. If we're going to survive, we're going to have to figure out a way to maximize those skill sets for the benefit of the whole group. Now, suppose that what this means is that a little community starts to spring up. We create a government. And in order to encourage hard work, we create laws, and and we even create currency to punish or reward those who contribute to the well-being of the community. And so this community starts to form. It's, It's rudimentary, of course. All we're doing is trading seashells and the like, but it's definitely a community, not entirely unlike the one that you and I live in today. Well, as you can imagine... There are going to be some people who have skills that are more valuable than others, some people who are more industrious than others, some who understand how trade works better than others. And so before long, economic classes begin to to emerge in our little makeshift society. Some people learn how to stockpile uh, seashells better than others, and they become incredibly wealthy, wealthy and powerful players on this little island economy. Now, suppose that while business is booming... A plane then flies overhead. It's a rescue party. After several weeks or perhaps months, they finally found us. And in a few short days, we're back on the mainland again, reintegrating back into our original communities. A couple of days after that, a carpenter goes waltzing into a bank. He's a survivor from the plane crash. And he's got a couple of buckets filled with seashells from the island. He was one of the wealthy ones. His carpentry skills were needed, and so he became a major player on the island. He returns home, and he's excited over his newfound wealth. And so the first thing he does when he gets back to the mainland is he goes to the bank with his seashells. And he slams those seashells up on the counter, face beaming. And he declares to the banker, I'd like to make a deposit. Now, what's that banker going to do in that situation? Are they going to deposit the seashells? Are they going to convert the seashells into dollars and and dump them into that man's bank account? Of course not, right? And the reason is because while seashells may have been a valid currency in the economy created on that deserted island, they mean nothing on the mainland. They're utterly worthless. They're not recognized. Well, this is the situation that we're facing as we consider means-oriented false gospels this morning. The question that we're asking is, what is the currency of the kingdom of heaven. And the idea is that, it is, is that in a means-oriented false gospel, a teacher hands you the spiritual equivalent to a pile of seashells and says, look now, you're rich. You may think that you're rich here on earth, but what you'll discover once you get to heaven is that you're actually bankrupt. Your so-called wealth is utterly worthless. It's not transferable in God's kingdom. You have nothing. That's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with means-oriented false gospels. Right hope, wrong currency. So then, what are these false gospels? As as I've said, I think there are three in total. However, I have to say, the more I've been thinking about these first two that we're going to deal with this morning, the more I think it may be most helpful to think of them almost as one. So let's begin our examination of these three means-oriented gospels by looking at both of those together this morning, and then we're going to come back and look at the third one, next week as we close out this series together the the first two means oriented false gospels are this number one the works-based gospel and number two we're we're gonna look at them together and number two the works plus grace gospel or grace plus works gospel now the reason why i want to mention these two together is because i think it's actually pretty common to confuse the grace plus works gospel with the simple works-based gospel. And in just a moment, I'll try to explain why I think that's significant, that people confuse these two concepts. To tell you the truth, I almost didn't include the works-based gospel in this list. The the works-based gospel, as you can tell from the title, teaches that salvation can be achieved by one's works. That's That's different from the grace plus works gospel which teaches that salvation is achieved by some combination of divine grace and human effort. I almost didn't include the works-based gospel in our list, and that's not because I believe it is possible to achieve salvation by works. Rather, it's because I can hardly think of anyone who tries to pass themselves off as Christian who actually adheres to this model. Now, don't get me wrong. Many people ascribe to the, the, the works-based model of salvation to Catholics, or they'll ascribe them to the Church of Christ, or groups like that, but that actually isn't accurate. Groups like these don't actually teach salvation by works. They teach salvation by some combination of grace plus works. What works-based salvation says is that surely by human effort, simply by your, your desire to be good, and your effort to be good, a person can be saved. Grace isn't needed at all, whatsoever. People will be judged by God simply by whether or not they were good people. Now, of course, there are certainly many people who believe that. A lot of people who believe that. It's just that most wouldn't call themselves Christian. Or even those who would, they're not saying that salvation is in any way dependent on their Christian faith. That's actually the whole point of that kind of, quote, gospel if you even want to call it that. The whole point is that Christ is not needed for salvation. Christianity is not the only way. Salvation can be achieved completely apart from Christ on the basis of one's deeds. So like you have some liberal Christians who would teach this kind of thing. You may have some other ecumenical types that teach this kind of thing. Again, Rob Bell, we've talked about him recently, but Rob Bell, for instance, in his book Love Wins, that comes to mind. But on the whole, what people are teaching when they teach this is either, number one, that the Bible isn't true, heaven and hell aren't real, at least not in the way that we think of them, and so salvation, however it's defined, is something radically different than what's taught by historical Orthodox Christianity. They would say it's something that's conceptual more than actual. It's freedom from our guilt and the like, not reconciliation to any actual God, at which point we're very far afield from anything that anyone would recognize as actual Christianity. Or they teach that, number two, there are ways for salvation outside of Christ. So even if they teach that salvation can be achieved through faith in Christ, they still entertain the possibility that God will judge a person and deem them saved simply on the basis of their own works as well. Like, that's an option, too. The point is, they're teaching that salvation is possible outside of Christ entirely, And at that point, we're not really talking about false gospels anymore. We're talking about false religions. Like the word gospel implies Christianity. They're not preaching Christianity at all. Like they're not even trying to disguise it as Christianity. They're just plain up saying there's another way. What they're preaching at that point is salvation through an alternate religious belief entirely. They're they're preaching a completely alternate false religion. This isn't too common among those other religious systems that are traditionally labeled as works-based. Take Pope Francis, for instance. I don't know if you've heard, but not too long ago, Pope Francis came out and said that it's possible for atheists to go to heaven so long as they obey their conscience and do good. Now, you may hear that and think, see, he's teaching salvation by works. You don't even need Christ to go to heaven. That's actually not what Pope Francis said. Not even then. If you listen to closely what Pope Francis said, then you'll see that he did not say that atheists don't need Christ to go to heaven. Rather, what he said was that atheists can obtain the benefits of Christ's sacrifice apart from a profession of faith in Christ on the basis of their obedience to their conscience. Obedience to their conscience, good works, becomes a type of surrogate faith for the atheist that enables the atoning work of Christ to be applied to them even apart from a profession of faith in Christ himself. In other words, he's not saying that there's a way of salvation outside of Christ. He's saying that a person may be saved through Christ, even apart from faith in Christ, on the basis of their good works. Again, their good works become the expression of a very vague sort of faith that God still recognizes and uses to apply the beneficial effects of Christ's atonement to them. That's confusing, I know, but the point is that he still taught that Christ's sacrifice, grace, was necessary for salvation, even though faith, at least faith in the way that you and I would think of it, may not be. And this is consistent with Catholic doctrine. See, what organizations like the Catholic Church or the Christian Church, for instance, teach, is that is not that salvation is by works alone. In fact, they'll actually get offended if you say that. The Catholic Church, for instance, would actually say that they officially condemned that kind of thinking at the Council of Carthage in 418 A.D. when they declared the teachings of the British monk Pelagius as heretical. I don't know if you're too familiar with the concept of Pelagianism, but it essentially teaches works-based salvation. It teaches that Adam and Eve's sin only affected themselves. It teaches that we're not inherently sinful, and so we're entirely free to choose God of our own free will apart from any need for grace. The church declared that to be heresy at the Council of Carthage. And the Catholic Church still calls it heresy today. They're not works-based in that sense. And they'll get offended if you say that they are. Now, what they teach is that a salvation occurs through some combination of grace plus works. In other words, we do not cause our salvation just simply through our own works, but we can contribute to it. So like we need Christ, we have to have Christ, we can't have salvation apart from him, but the way I receive his atoning work is through my contribution of faith, which is exercised as, uh, when I uh, participate in what are called sacraments. Uh, perhaps you've heard of that word before, uh, sacrament. Well, if you've ever wondered what that means, what this term sacrament means, is essentially a channel of grace. It's the media of grace, so to speak. Just like we use the term media to refer to a platform that people use to communicate ideas to other people, so also the sacraments are the media of grace. They're the means that God uses to distribute grace. So, for instance, Catholic doctrine would, in a sense, say that we're saved by grace. I mean, it's hard to deny that when Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that we're saved by grace and not by the works of the law. So no one really tries to make that argument. No one tries to say that we're saved by our works. Not even Catholics would say that. They would say that we're saved by grace. And yet they would also say that you must be baptized to be saved. That salvation cannot occur apart from baptism. At least that's what they've said historically. Again, they're evolving on that issue. Vatican II started to shift that thinking back in the 60s. Now you have the Pope saying that atheists can go to heaven. Clearly, they're still shifting their position on this issue. But historically, that's what they've said. They said. They've said that baptism is essential for salvation. And the reason why they say this is not because they believe that baptism earns us salvation per se, so much as they see it as a sacrament. It's the channel of God's grace. The idea is that Jesus made atonement for our sins and it's his atonement that will save us, but the effects of that atonement are kind of doled out in portions as we take advantage of the sacraments like baptism, which is really just the first and most foundational of many different sacraments that they teach. Uh, Other sacraments would include things like communion and confession and penance for sins. None of these things they would say are salvific in themselves, but they are the means through which grace is efficaciously communicated to the participant. So in a sense, you earn your salvation through participation through participation in the sacraments and good deeds. But really what you're doing is just withdrawing more and more of God's grace from the divine bank account. God forgives. Christ paid for our sin at the cross. But we have to keep going back to the ATM to make one withdrawal of grace after another and then another and then another, which we do through our actions. Do you understand? God's grace saves us. But they would say that we access that grace through our actions. That's the historical teaching of the Catholic Church. Not salvation through works alone, but salvation through grace plus works. Faith is necessary in the Catholic system because it's the thing that motivates me to take advantage of the means that God has set in place to progressively dole out grace for my sin. The Christian Church really functions the same way with their position on baptism. Now, I'd imagine I'm about to step on some toes here. After all, uh, there are a lot of Christian churches here in the area, and they're filled with some really great people. Uh, We have friends of ours that go to the Christian church, and they appear to be very godly people. Uh, So let me just preface what I'm about to say with what I've said regarding other false gospels that we've talked about over the past few weeks. A person's theology is not always consistent with their actions. For that matter, it's not even always internally consistent with itself, even in theory. We like to think that someone's actions will be consistent with their theological beliefs, but this this isn't always true. In fact, I'd like to point out that this isn't even true of you. You do not always act in accordance with what you say you believe. And the same goes for other people as well. I've said that there are pastors who have a pretty good understanding of the the gospel who still employ methods that are inconsistent with that gospel because they can't see the contradiction. Well, the same applies to the church member. It's possible for someone to attend a church without necessarily adhering to everything the church says or teaches. That's especially true in today's day and age. In fact, in today's day and age, with the de-emphasis on doctrine, I think that there are a lot of people who don't know, who just flat don't know what their church says or teaches or why it even matters because the church refuses to go to that level of depth. So like you have churches that have a kind of private doctrinal statement, but they, are, they hardly ever touch on its finer points in public. And so people just don't know what their church teaches. I don't think this is uncommon. And from what I can see, this is just as true for many Christian churches as it is for many other kinds of churches. And so let me be clear. Just because I'm about to say that the Christian church adheres to a false gospel and I am about to say that at the same time I'm not condemning everyone who goes to the Christian church or something like that. I would bet that there are many people who go to the Christian church who just don't know what the Christian church teaches on baptism because it's simply not emphasized. So please don't misunderstand the implications of what I'm about to say. I think it's certainly more than possible for someone to attend a Christian church and still be saved. Now, that being said, what the Christian church teaches on baptism is wrong. It's dreadfully wrong. It's disastrously wrong. It's so wrong that I would have to say that if someone knows it, understands it, and believes it, then I don't think I can say with any confidence that they're safe. Again, I realize that what I'm about to say probably sounds divisive or nitpicky because after all, the Christian church may be off in only the smallest degrees in their doctrine. Really, it's just their position on baptism that I have a major problem with. That's all. So like they're off by maybe no more than 10% or 5% or something like that. But understand, if that 10 or 5% is the difference between the true gospel and the false one, then it makes all the difference in the world. Jesus fought the Pharisees over their, quote, minor differences. And I think it's completely within the bounds for me to do the same with the Christian church's position on baptism, because what it teaches about baptism is a false means-oriented gospel. It is a grace plus works gospel. You see, what the Christian church teaches, at least historically, and I realize they're all independent, so this may possibly vary from one church to another, but historically what they've taught is that baptism is necessary for salvation. Like, what they teach is that you can believe in Christ by faith, but at that point, you've not yet been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You're not yet born again. No, you have to go and be baptized first. And then after you're baptized, that's when you receive the Holy Spirit, and it's only then that you're saved, after your baptism. And to be clear, if you're familiar with the term baptismal regeneration, They wouldn't necessarily say that they believe that. The Christian church would not teach that you're saved simply by the fact that you're baptized or that the Holy Spirit automatically indwells a person at the point of baptism, even apart from faith. No, they say that faith is necessary. They would even say that faith is the basis for one's salvation. But all the same, they teach that you're not yet a part of the body of Christ. And I don't just mean like locally, physically, you know, manifestly. I mean like universally invisible church you're not a part of the body of christ until you're baptized baptism is not the cause of your salvation they would say that a person is saved by grace through faith but baptism is still a necessary step in your salvation if i could put it like this say you suddenly inherited a million dollars from a long lost rich uncle and in order to receive that inheritance you're going to have to go down to the bank right to make uh to make a withdrawal and you're going to have to go through these steps where, where you know sign papers and all these different things uh and after you go through those steps you're a million dollars richer but you don't receive the million dollars because you signed the papers right like you didn't get paid a million dollars to sign papers you didn't earn it when you did that right you received it as a gift however if you don't sign the papers you don't receive the inheritance that's the best I can describe the teaching on baptism among Christian churches as I understand it. Baptism is the equivalent to signing the papers to receive the inheritance. The inheritance isn't earned, but ultimately it's your belief in, and ultimately it's your, your belief in the long-lost uh, long rich uncle that, that drives you to get in the car and travel to the bank. So salvation is still by faith, but baptism is still a necessary expression of that faith, and without it you're not saved. So again, this is not salvation apart from grace. But it's grace plus works. So what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal about that is that it's the Galatian heresy in Christian form. That's the problem with every grace plus works model. It's just another form of the teaching that Paul explicitly condemned in the book of Galatians. If you would flip over to Galatians chapter 1, please. We read this uh During our uh, scripture reading here this morning. You have this uh, brief greeting in Galatians 1. And then Paul opens up the book of Galatians in the the strongest terms possible. Saying, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And are turning to a different gospel. Different gospel, he says. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul's clearly disturbed by what he hears coming out of Galatia when he writes this. There are Galatians who have accepted Paul's message of salvation. That is to say they're Christians. These are not unbelievers. These are people who, for all intents and purposes, seem to have accepted the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, by Paul's estimation, from what he's hearing, they're departing from this faith. They're turning to, quote, a different gospel. And Paul warns against this decision in the strongest possible terms, saying that anyone who is preaching this gospel is to be accursed. They are under the wrath of God. I mean, imagine getting this letter from Paul. That opening would wake you up, wouldn't it? If the Apostle Paul is writing to you, essentially saying, what's wrong with you? Can't you see that you're rejecting Christ? That that would certainly get my attention. I would hope it would you as well. Obviously, whatever it is that Paul's addressing, it would appear that salvation is in the balance. Again, that would make me want to understand what Paul is so concerned about, right? So what is that? What's this? Error. What is this different gospel that the Galatians are unwittingly falling prey to? As the book of Galatians continues, it becomes apparent that it's this grace plus works model. Judaizers have come into their midst. And they're telling the Gentile Christians, you know, that's good that you've believed in the Christ. We believe too. But now you must submit to the law of Moses in order to be saved. This is illustrated with Paul's story about his confrontation with Peter in Galatians 2. He recalls how a similar event occurred in Antioch where some Jews came up from Jerusalem to greet these Gentiles that had come into the faith. And he recalls how Peter immediately started to change his behavior. How he started to live like he was still under the law of Moses by withdrawing from his fellowship with the Gentiles. And how this appeared to indicate that this was a kind of obedience that in some way said that uh, this measure of law keeping was necessary for salvation. To be clear, no one was questioning whether the Gentiles had received the gospel at this point, but in his actions, Peter was still communicating that it was now necessary to live like a Jew now that they were in Christ. Paul came down hard on Peter, apparently even going so far as to tell him that he stood condemned if he continued in that state. Peter, for his, for his part, heard this interdependent. He turned away from that hypocrisy. Well, that's what's happening in the Galatian church as well. People aren't saying that Christ is unnecessary as if there's a completely different way of salvation apart from Christ. They're not teaching a straight up works based salvation. No, they're saying, good, you have believed in Christ. That's necessary for salvation. Now, to complete that process, you must submit to the law of Moses. You need to receive circumcision, for instance. You need to join the people of Israel. You need to become one of us. So that you can access this gift that's been given to you. Because salvation, that's from the Jews. It's for the descendants of Abraham. So now that you've believed, make sure that you exercise that faith by accessing the means that God has ordained for the reception of this grace. Which is the law of Moses. Does does that sound at all familiar? That's basically the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Only in Jewish form. Where instead of sacraments, it's the Jewish law. Mosaic law. That's basically the teaching of the Christian church. Only circumcision has been replaced with baptism. Yes, yeah, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, but you have to follow the steps that God has ordained in for uniting yourself to Christ, which includes circumcision. That's what the false teachers in uh, the, the church in Galatia were saying. They were saying you have to join yourself to the people of God, to the, to the descendants of Abraham in order to be saved, and that happens through circumcision. So you need to receive this. How is this any different than the Christian church's teaching on baptism as a necessary, though not effective, step for salvation? It's not any different at all. It's the exact same thing. And do you know what Paul says about this kind of thing? Flip over to chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. He says this. "Look, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will have you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who uh, unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I mean, you can really sense the despair in Paul's writing as he's seeing this teaching that sounds so much like the truth spreading its influence among the Galatians as it rips them away from their head. In a play on words, he says that the one who receives circumcision under these circumstances, the one who receives circumcision because they think it's necessary to participate in the gospel, he says that they are actually severed from Christ. In fact, in a, in a, that act of self-mutilation, they, he kind of does a play on words here where he talks about how they've cut themselves off From Christ, They're now separated from Him outside the kingdom. And the reason is because in that act, by receiving circumcision in this way, they are denying the concept of justification by grace through faith alone. Paul elaborates on this point earlier in the epistle. He goes out of his way to state that all the benefits that they've received in Christ, they've received by faith alone. There was no need for any kind of intermediary to deliver this grace to them or to complete their salvation. He says in Galatians 3, 1 to 6, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? This he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you. Do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul says, look, the spirit is presently working miracles among you because that was happening in the early church. And he says, did that happen? Tell me, did that happen before or after you were circumcised? Clearly it happened before. And so Paul's point is, you know, so why do you think that you need to submit to the Mosaic law? Why do you think you need to receive circumcision to be justified or even to be perfected in Christ? He notes on two different occasions that they receive this spirit by hearing with faith. You see it once in verse 2 and then again in verse 5. The idea is that there is no media, no sacrament of any sort that's needed, to transfer this grace to them. It was all received simply when they heard and believed. When they heard and believed, they were made a part of that covenant, that new covenant that Christ ratified at the cross. They didn't need to be circumcised or anything like that to be included in Abraham's blessing. And the reason is because Abraham himself received this blessing before his circumcision. (laughs) When he, quote, believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. This is why Paul goes on to say that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. It's because when they believe, they're included in the promise of salvation in the exact same way that Abraham was, which is by faith. They're joined to him in God's kingdom in that way, by the same means that Abraham was brought in with faith. Clearly, the idea that Paul is trying to communicate is that salvation is purely by grace through faith alone. And to depart from this message in any way, even by adding some standard of obedience that is necessary in order to receive grace or salvation, is to depart from Christ himself. The one who does it is severed from Christ. They're cut off. They've turned away from the faith that was once delivered to them in order to follow another gospel. This is why the Grace Plus Works model is such a big, big deal in, in whatever form it takes. It's another gospel. The Catholic teaching on the sacraments presents another gospel. For that matter, any Protestant teaching on the necessity of baptism for salvation, even if it says that baptism is only necessary but not effective for salvation, it still preaches another gospel. Salvation is only by grace through faith alone. This is the great and glorious truth of the gospel that it's utterly free, unearned, unmerited. We come to Christ bringing nothing, doing nothing, only asking for mercy. And he grants it. This is the gospel, the good news. Salvation is not in any way earned, it is only given. And anyone who says otherwise, in the words of Paul, they are to be accursed. There's no room for middle ground. There's no room for compromise. It's a false gospel. Now, there's a reason why I spend all this time articulating the difference between the works-based and grace plus works gospels and then explaining the problems with the grace plus works gospel here this morning. And believe it or not, it's not just to beat up on other denominations. Though I do think you should be educated on what others believe and why. I don't want to be one of those churches that de-emphasize doctrine to the point that you don't know why denominations exist. There's a very good reason why they exist. All the same, that's not the reason why I'm going over this this morning. No, the reason is because this Grace Plus Works gospel, which is really a very prevalent form of of false gospel, I think it's really much closer to you and I than we probably like to think. You see, it's not uncommon... For evangelicals to badmouth Catholics or other forms of works-oriented Christians because we think that they're saying they're saved by their works, and we know that that's obviously wrong. And so we say, wow, they're missing the point. The Bible never said we can say our, save ourselves. We need grace. We need Christ. And when we say that, we say it from ignorance. Because technically speaking, Catholics would say that we can't save ourselves either nor would any one of these Protestant denominations that teach baptismal regeneration. They would all say that salvation is by grace, that we do not earn our salvation, and yet they would still say that there is some work that we must do in order to receive our salvation. And I think once we understand that that is all that they're saying, and then once we understand that the Bible explicitly condemns that kind of thinking as a false gospel, I think then we may begin to realize that many of us are probably much closer to Catholicism than what makes us comfortable, than what we'd like to think. There are many people who are doctrinally evangelical, but functionally Catholic. Like whenever we think that there's something that we must do to receive grace, we're functionally Catholic. Now, before you go and misunderstand me, let me make this point clear. The scripture does speak of God responding to our actions. And it says that depending on how we respond to God's commands, he may act either favorably or unfavorably towards us. Like if I pray, I can expect that God will act differently towards me than if I don't pray. Things like that. Draw near to God, James says, and he will draw near to you. The scripture speaks of our relationship with God in this way. He disciplines those he loves, for instance, according to Hebrews 12. He, we, can, we can grieve the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians 4. So again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I am not saying that we should not think our actions don't in any way affect God's response to us. They do. However, however what I am saying is that as Christians, our actions do not affect God's love or grace towards us. We've received the full measure of that simply when we believed in Christ. Now, again, that doesn't mean that God will never, ever be upset with us because we're Christians. The whole grieving of the Holy Spirit implies that God can be upset with us as Christians because only believers have the Holy Spirit. I mean, that passage is very specific to us. Likewise, Hebrews 12 indicates that God disciplines his children. The whole idea, actually, is that if he didn't discipline us, then it would be a sign that he doesn't love us, that we're not his children. So... He can be upset with us or even angry with us as Christians. But the point is that even in that, even in that, he never loses his love for us. Many of you understand this as parents. Your children can make you angry. But that doesn't mean that you ever don't love them. In fact, we will sometimes get more angry with our children when they sin because we love them. I mean, I I, got to tell you the truth, guys. when, When other people's children sin, that usually doesn't upset me right? It's when my own do it that I react. That's because I have a, I share a special bond with them that I don't share with other people. That's the basic teaching of the passage on divine discipline in Hebrews 12. We, you know, we tend to think in binary terms and we tend to think, well, if God is, is angry or, you know, grieved or whatever over my sin, then that means he doesn't love me. And that's not how it works. It was God's jealousy for Israel that caused him to have an especially strong response to their sin rather than the sins of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And it's the same way with us. He's jealous jealous for you, Christian. He has a strong love for you, which means that he will also have a strong reaction when he sees you turn to worship idols. He's not going to tolerate that. Because of his love for you. So God can be upset with us. The closest term I can maybe come up with. Even when we believe. I'd even say especially when we believe, actually. But even then, we do not lose his love for us, ever. That compassion, that mercy, that is unaffected by our actions. It is given solely by grace. And it is given through faith when we believe. Many evangelical Christians do not act this way. They say, that, they say that salvation is by grace through faith, but then they act as if God's love, His grace, is somehow contingent upon their actions. Basically, they repeat the Galatian heresy. The, Galer, the Galatian heresy said, salvation is by grace and Christ is the Savior, but now you have to do these things to gain access to His grace. And that's what many Christians believe functionally today. They'll look at the sin in their life. And, and they'll think not just that God is dissatisfied with their sin. But they'll think that he doesn't love them because of their sin. Or almost that he's set against them to harm them because of their sin. And so they'll say to themselves, you know, I want Christ to forgive me. But I know I've got to change my actions first. I've got to clean my life up, and then I can turn to Him and ask for His grace, and I know He'll forgive me. They believe God's love is contingent upon their actions, upon their obedience, and that's not gospel. Or to state it in the positive, they'll say to themselves, like the Pharisees did, you know, I've done X, Y, and Z for God. I go to church, I pay my tithe, I do my devotions daily. That that means that God has to love me. They almost take this position that God owes them something because of their obedience. And this is the same thing as the first person, the one who doubts their, the love of God, but it's just in reverse. They're not basing their relationship with God on Christ's righteousness here, but on their own. They kind of see Jesus as the one who began their relationship with God, but now it's their righteousness that completes it. God loves them, or He loves them more, because of their obedience because of their righteousness. That's the Galatian heresy in evangelical form. So if that describes you this morning, and if you're sitting there burdened by your sin, feeling as if God doesn't love you, because He sees who you are, and He knows what you've done, and you realize that what you are is a sinner who falls short of God's perfection. You know that you've disobeyed and you feel the conviction of that. And so now it feels as if God doesn't love you. And now all you want is to feel his love again, to know that you're his child, that he cares for you. Well, here's the good news of the gospel. If you've turned and believed on Christ, then God does love you. You are his child. You don't have to do anything to earn that. You just have to believe in Christ and ask for his mercy and he'll give it to you because salvation is utterly free you don't have to clean yourself up first or set your life in order before god will be merciful to you and forgive you no you come as a sinner and he washes you and he cleanses you that's all a gift of his grace this is the glory of the gospel that while we were still sinners christ died for us so just believe turn to christ in faith and receive the mercy that he has to offer And on the other hand, if you're sitting here this morning thinking that God does love you because He sees who you are and He knows what you've done and and you've repented and you live a righteous life and now you think that God owes you something because of that repentance. If you think that God is obligated to you in any way because of the steps you've taken to experience His grace, then you need to repent of your self-righteousness and belief. All your works are but seashells in the kingdom of heaven. They hold hold no value there. The only currency that God accepts is the righteousness of Christ, which is applied to you only by faith. So if you're sitting there trusting in your own righteousness instead, even if it's only as a means to access God's grace, then you still need to repent. You too are committing the Galatian heresy. By, by trying to trust in anything in addition to Christ. Listen, it doesn't even have to be instead of Christ, just in addition to Christ. If you're trusting in anything in addition to Christ, then you are actually severing yourself from Christ. You need to repent. So repent and believe in the gospel. Now it's at this point that I imagine that there's this objection that will come up. But what about repentance, right? Are you saying that we can just live however we want? And as long as we believe, we're going to be saved. And this is most certainly not what I'm saying. That actually would entail the final false gospel in our series. The decisionistic gospel, also known as the easy believism gospel. And we'll discuss that false gospel next week. So if you have that objection, just hold on to it for one more week. And in the meantime, uh, I would encourage you. To bask in the freeness of God's grace. Enjoy it. Delight in it. Worship Him for it. Because it is indeed good news.